Welcome to Have Hope Will Travel. I'm your host, Katie Axelson, and today I'm here with Dr. Bree Thomas, a nurse practitioner, here to share her story, a little bit about what life is like as a nurse practitioner, and then recognizing, hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic. What's it like um, being a healthcare provider during a pandemic? So, Bree, welcome to the show. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. So, tell us a little bit about what it means to be a nurse practitioner and what your journey looked like to get here. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that there's actually not very much uh, education or publicity around what it means to be a nurse practitioner. Some of that is that it varies from state to state what you're able to do as a nurse practitioner. So that adds a little bit of the confusion. But the profession came originally from nurses and it was in order to address the gap in care that we have in the States. So we have a huge shortage of medical doctors or MDs who go into primary care. So um, whether it's an outpatient clinic um, for your general work physical or you have high blood pressure, there's a lot of those things that are not managed by a specialist. Unfortunately, the way our system is built is that specialists, that's where the money is. Um, but in primary care, there's a shortage of you either have to drive a long ways or you have very limited options or there's just not anyone um, that you feel comfortable with. You might have access to only one and maybe you're a female and you would see it like to see a female provider and there's only male providers. So um, the nurse practitioner profession came that it was nurses who are historically the most trusted profession in the country and often in the whole world. Um, but taking them, adding some education to what they already know, and then elevating what they can do from their training to be able to prescribe medication, to be able to see patients. And then depending on the state, you either do that underneath the umbrella of a medical doctor, an MD, or you do it on your own. So uh, I'm originally from Oregon. You can do it on your own in Oregon. Uh, other states like New Jersey, 100% of what you do is under the license of a medical doctor, MD. So it was in response to try to fill those gaps. And then for me personally, I had a BA and it was in Spanish and international studies, which wasn't going to get me really a career in anything. Um, and so I ended up working in medical offices, which I really enjoyed. And the downside was the insurance authorizations, the phone calls, like I wanted more people contact. And so I thought about going back to school to be an RN. Um, and then one of the doctors actually brought up that there are direct entry programs. So if you have a Bachelor of Arts or a Bachelor of Science, you can do these programs that it's an accelerated program because you've already done English 101 and you've done the basics. So you can mm -hmm. just focus on the medical stuff. So I uh, did 15 months of a registered nurse program and got my master's. And then I knew that I wanted to be a nurse practitioner. So I actually went straight through um, and just finished the doctorate of nurse practitioner, but um, have been a nurse practitioner for the past year. I passed the boards last June. So, and then within that you can specialize. So I'm a FNP, which is a family nurse practitioner. I can see people from ages of zero to 
hundred and whatever. And then there's pediatric nurse practitioners who can only see ages zero to 18 or 21, depending on their state. And then there's geriatric nurse practitioners or adult, and they only see adults. So what is your official title? I am a family nurse practitioner, comma, doctorate of nursing practice. (laughs) That's a lot of letters. Yeah. What made you choose to be a nurse practitioner as opposed to, say, going to medical school or being a PA or all the other provider options that exist? Yeah, another good question. So I was not someone who knew when I came out of high school what I wanted to do. No one in my extended family or immediate family is in the medical field at all. Um, It's a lot of uh, construction and teachers. I found by chance that I liked the medical field. And then when I was looking at going back to school, a lot of the programs to be either physician assistant, PA, or a medical doctor, you have to have a bachelor of science, which I didn't have. And so that would have added some training that I would have needed to do ahead of time, some extra science classes. So I would love to say that nurse practitioner was the first on my list, but it came down to the amount of years that I would have to spend in school. Uh, Would I have to get a BS and then continue on? And uh, for for a medical doctor, you do four years of school and then also three years of a residency. And I, with a nurse practitioner, you can, it's more, on the job training. And so I was able to get interactions and clinical hours and work with patients sooner than I would have been able to otherwise. And it makes more sense to do such a long residency and then fellowship if you're gonna specialize. But the amount of schooling is equivocal to nurse practitioners and medical doctors to be able to then do primary care. So I can't do surgery, but I'm trained to help patients manage their chronic conditions, for example, diabetes, high blood pressure, that sort of thing, and do it in the mode or a different type of education that we receive as nurses versus medical doctors, where historically the answer has been to provide medication versus nurses come from Do you have the money to pay for your medication? Do you have transportation to come to your appointment? Let's get you case manager. Let's get you into behavioral health at treating the whole patient and the whole family as the goal versus throwing medication at it. And that schools are, medical schools are changing that methodology, but it definitely is a different mode of teaching or a different goal coming from a nursing background. So it ended up working really well. I made the decision because I could enter the field a lot faster. I was starting school again at 30 and wanted to be able to get into a career. And then once I was in it, I really liked the teaching methods and the goals and the foundation of nursing and then nurse practitioner. I'm very, very proud to be one, be one of both. How long was your schooling journey after your BA? Well, to figure out that I wanted to go back to school was eight years. And in that time, there was some prerequisites that I had to do to go back. Um, And then the application process and then actual schooling, including the prereqs, was five years. So a while, but not an obscene amount of time. Correct. Yeah. What did you choose? (laughs) Definitely feels like a long time. I do feel like you've been in school for quite a while. 
I do want to ask one clarifying question from your education perspective. So you were board certified last year. You're yeah. currently in a residency. You graduated this year, but you're still in your residency. <laughs> I know you've explained this to me like 15 times. I'm starting to get it, but can you help our listeners get it too? Yeah. So going to the school that I went to, um, I'll choose not to name it, but uh, it switched over to a doctorate of nursing practice, a DNP versus just a master's. And I'm not saying just because a master's is not hard work, but it, you needed to, we have to go the extra level in New York state and the rest of the country. At this point, you don't need a doctorate to practice. You need a master's. So I got the master's in the first 15 months of the RN um, training. So I had the master's, then I needed to do the clinical hours, which you, you know, you rotate to different sites. You see how different providers do uh, their practice. You learn more of the on the job training as you're actually with patients. And I had to do the classwork. So I had to do another pharmacology class. I had to learn how to, you know, recognize and diagnose something. What would be the treatment plan for that? How do you assess if your treatment plan worked? Um, so doing all of that schooling and then having the master's already, I qualified to be able to take the boards. So I took the boards a year ago. Um, it's a pass fail thing. So I passed and I still had schooling to do to finish the doctorate part of it. So um, instead of doing a dissertation, we had to write up patient case studies. So it was, this is the patient I saw. This is what I thought they had. This is how I treated it. Um, and there were certain competencies. So you had to prove you could recognize when a patient needed to go to the hospital. You had to prove you could help someone manage their chronic condition like diabetes or high blood pressure. You had to prove that you um, could refer someone to a specialist when they needed it and, you know, keep in contact with a specialist and bring the patient back in and, you know, co-manage the patient. So there were 13 of those that we had to be able to do. And so in those papers, we had to write, how is it that I met the criteria for those competencies? So then apart from all of that, I had to do that anyways for school this year, I decided to apply to a residency program. So similar to what medical students do, medical students are required to do three years of residency. Nurse practitioners are not. And I think that that's not wise on our part, because even though you've done a certain number of clinical hours, you come out and you've never been a full-time provider. Um, you've only been in class and that's where the basis of most of your knowledge is. And so as medical students spend three years full-time with patients and getting more familiar with the care and comfortable with it, nurse practitioners just jump into seeing patients. So that part of the model I think is lacking. There are nurse practitioner residencies across the country. There are not nearly as many because they're, the residency programs are not paid for by Medicare, like the MD residencies. So it's not as easy to have one. Like you have to um, come up with your curriculum, have providers that are willing to have someone shadow them. Um, so, you know, I, during this residency, I see my own patients, but if I have a question, there's someone there 
to ask um, dedicated. They're not currently seeing patients during that time frame of the day. So they're only asking questions or being able to answer questions. Um, and then once a week I do didactic. So I still have lectures that I listen to from the organization that's in Connecticut. We're connected with them. So we do that. There's, uh, we have to write about our week every week and things that we're learning. Um, we also did rotation. So instead of just jumping in and doing primary care all day, every day, um, we did a rotation with women's health. We did a rotation in diabetes. We did a rotation in infectious disease. So we were able to spend time in those before COVID um, to kind of also see if there was, if we had interest in those other areas. Like I actually found out I really like infectious disease. So I'm going to start doing subspecialty in that. And I just wouldn't have even had the opportunity outside of a residency program. So I'm still doing the residency. It ends in August. It looks pretty different than when we started just because of COVID. Like a lot of the, um, like we were going to shadow the ophthalmologist. He wasn't seeing patients during COVID. Uh, we were going to shadow the nutritionist. She got COVID. So it looked really, it's looked really different. Um, but I've appreciated that they, and a lot of new practices, when you go in as a new provider, you jump in and start seeing 20 to 25 patients a day. And it's that's just really challenging for any new provider to jump in and see that many patients and to still do your notes and do your billing correctly and have someone, I have someone look through my notes so they're able to say like, oh, you might wanna change how you did this or the way you worded this was confusing. So this whole year I've had help with my notes, help with questions, uh, learning different, treat, you know, medicine is not black and white. So you can ask one provider how they would do something. They'll say something. Another provider will say something else and neither one of them is wrong. It's based on what they've seen work, what their previous experiences, what they're comfortable doing. So you might have someone order uh, cardiac monitoring for their patient and somebody else refers to the cardiologist to have the cardiologist do it. Neither one is incorrect. So learning those nuances is nice to do it with support versus just kind of being thrown to the wolves, which sort of happens because there's just a really high demand for primary care providers. And it's not that anybody means any harm. It's just, you need to get out here and start working. <laughs> so, there's a reason why they educated or graduated a bunch of people early so that they could start seeing patients during COVID. It was just like, start seeing people. We need more providers. Yeah. So what does a subspecialty in infectious disease look like? Oh, I'm so stoked. So I'll still be able to do primary care, which is great. Like I'll still be helping people with their diabetes and blood pressure and that sort of thing, doing annual physicals. Cause I love education and I love preventive care. So doing this subspecialty, I'll get the training and I'll also help. Um, I'll have a panel of patients that have uh, either HIV or hepatitis C. Sometimes they have both. Um, and then, you know, looking at other infectious disease like Lyme disease or, um, other things like that. So getting extra training to be able to know more the nuances of the types of medication they take, which ones fit certain people's lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then I'm also doing, it's called X-Wavered, and it's to be able to then prescribe uh, Suboxone or Buprenorphine uh, to patients with substance use disorder. And the goal of increasing the number of people who can provide treatment so that there isn't even more of a lack of care. What type of value do MPs bring to the medical community? 
I would like to say empathy, but that's not something that only comes from nurse practitioners. There's definitely comes from, I think, the whole healthcare field in general of whether it's social workers or uh, nurses or uh, certified nurse assistants in the hospitals, the CNAs. There's all different levels that are really important and all of those levels make it so my job now or medical doctor, whoever, that my job is possible because of the medical assistant or the nurse and getting the patient's vital signs and recognizing when the patient is in distress or in the hospital. You have to have someone who can bathe patients and who can um, change the sheets in their bed. Like all of those roles are equally important. So um, specific to the nurse practitioner field, I think it's unique that it comes from nursing and then has the ability to prescribe medication. So the reason why people trust their nurses is when they're in the hospital, the nurse is the one that's with them 99% of the time. And so the nurse is catching, no, let's not prescribe that medication because my patient has a reaction to that last time or being the other set of eyes to make sure the dose is correct or Um, So then taking that and then being able to be the one who's actually prescribing the medication. My own personal opinion, the arguing back and forth between nurse practitioners and medical doctors is extremely silly um, and really pushes us backwards instead of moves the profession forwards, that instead of bickering amongst ourselves, we should join together and fight against low reimbursement rates or fight against how many patients they want us to try to see in a day. It's very quantity focused versus quality focused. And so if we could all of us get together and push against that, I think we would be a lot more effective than fighting amongst ourselves of nurse practitioners versus MDs and MDs versus nurse practitioners and PAs. Like it just, I think it's very silly. I think we just do a lot better if we were, all working together and recognizing we all have something to bring to the table. I love that. That's a great call out. And you're right. It It's a focused, unified goal versus the reality that's a little bit more divisive. What made you choose family practice? I really love old people. And I actually thought about just doing adult Jero, which is AGNP. And then I worked at an orthopedic office and we, the surgeons I was working for did knee replacements and hip replacements for the most part. And I loved patients, but it got a little tiring, I guess I would say, to be honest, of only doing the same thing every day, which is another reason why I haven't picked a specialty focus is because I like the diverse care that I provide in a day, that it's a physical for somebody, it's somebody else stubbed their toe, somebody else has an insect bite, somebody else has eczema, somebody else has diabetes, somebody else has hypertension or high blood pressure. So all of those together. And when you catch people at different age ranges, you can have different effects. So um, someone with diabetes, when you catch them in their 30s, is at a different age range or stage in their life than someone who's in their 50s, 70s, or 80s. And so hopefully being able to then also incorporate more preventive care and catching people when they're younger, educating not just them, but their whole family, and then being able to hopefully affect future generations. It's an uphill battle with pretty much every single patient I see, but 
you feel there's enough where you feel like you've pushed the rock a little bit up the hill that it's worth it. <laughs> that helps. Every little bit helps. Totally. So your RN license is different than your MP license and you have to maintain them both? Yes. And they both have annual fees that I have to pay. Oh, that's pleasant. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> they yeah. really make that easy for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what type of clinic do you work in? I'm at a community health center, so we are federally qualified. We call it a FQHC, federally qualified health center, meaning some of the money that we get is from the government. So there's a lot of data that looks at what access people have to primary care. And if you're in a location where you're providing care that is otherwise not accessible to that population, whether it's by language or uh, proximity or lack of public transportation, whatever it is, if you're there, you can qualify for special funding. And then to get that funding, you have to, you get uh, audited and you have to prove this is the work that we're doing. This is how we retain our patients. These are our numbers. So are all of our patients who are diabetic, are they all uncontrolled? We're not doing our job then. Are we helping patients who have high blood pressure get their blood pressure under control? Are we limiting the number that are going into the hospital and using those services? Because those services are very expensive. Um, and then connecting people with things like transportation, connecting them with housing. Uh, we have a lot of patients that are uh, not documented. So that plays a role in our care. We've got patients who uh, don't have insurance for whatever reason. And so we have a sliding scale. So depending on what your income is and how many people you provide for with that income, we can offer you a discounted visit. So it might be uh, $15, 20, 25, 30. And so that then is your kind of copay, quote unquote, for that visit. And then your clinic is outside of New York City, right? Yeah, I'm about an hour outside of the city in a town called Peekskill, and they have locations throughout upstate New York, and then they also merged with uh, another community health center that's in the five boroughs, so with the goal to extend the, the care that they can provide even further. Sure. Has that been as heavily impacted by COVID-19 as New York City itself has been? As an organization, it varies because we're still pretty in peak scale. We're in the suburbs. So we're in Westchester County, which had really high numbers, um, mostly because of a town called New Rochelle had really high numbers and we're in, but the county in general was affected. But then further upstate, they didn't see any cases. And so um, that has really affected care, but then also people's kind of willingness to be in quarantine or not when there just aren't cases why are they having to stay home? So um, that's been a bit of a challenge. We all moved to doing remote visits, which which has been interesting and challenging because you depend so much on your stethoscope and being able to listen and feel and touch and smell. And you're limited. If the patient has video, then you're lim potentially limited to only hearing their voice. If they have a video, you hope you have a good connection so that it's not a blurry picture to see what they're talking about. And then sometimes you just need them to come in. And so we've got one provider per day who is seeing patients in the office. And if that's because they don't have access to a video or we tried to see it and we couldn't tell what it was, or I had a patient who had had COVID, we treated her and still a month later, she was still complaining of shortness of breath. And so 
I had done the things that I could over the phone and I was seeing her over video. And so it wasn't to the extent she needed to go to the emergency room, but I needed someone to listen to her lungs. So she then by my okay came in and was seen in the office. We trying to still meet the needs of the patient population while keeping them as safe as possible and ourselves as safe as possible. Cause we just don't have the protective equipment to see everybody right now in the office. Do you feel like you've had adequate protective equipment for the people you're seeing in the office or has there been a shortage of that at your clinic? So <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble here. No, it, there's just so many factors that play into it. So um, when it first started, uh, somebody stole from the clinic. So we did have a lot of stuff in storage of uh, the gowns, gloves, hand sanitizer, and then someone got into the storage and wiped us out of that. Thankfully, we're part of a bigger organization and they moved really quickly to consolidate. And so clinics that weren't using as much, we were able to funnel it to the bigger clinics like ours. It was also hard because patients were taking our stuff. So um, we had to take the gloves out of the room because the patients would, while you were um, talking to them, they wouldn't. But as they would leave, they were taking gloves out of the boxes. So that we were just running out much faster. And some of that I totally get it. They needed gloves and they that was the access they had, but it made it so that we weren't going to have enough. Uh, we have one provider who he's 6'9 or 6'10 and he needs extra large gloves. And so we were really hoarding those because it's easier to get through mediums and smalls, but there were, we were going to run out of extra large gloves. So, um, and then it was confusing because the information changed a lot in the beginning. So first, uh, you had to change your gown and mask between each patient, but then that wasn't sustainable. So then it went to, you could change it in between every five patients and now it's change it once a day. (laughs) And, uh, first, you were supposed to leave a room, clean it, and then leave it for two hours. Well, then you were supposed to clean it before and after the patient and only leave it empty for one hour. So tracking all of those things and how often we were supposed to be changing our protective equipment, um, knowing that patients were coming, it's a healthcare clinic, patients are coming in sick. So how do we protect the ones who are not sick? Um, and making sure, so we switched to doing the testing outside. And so that has helped. There's a separate entrance. So people who are getting tested for that, we can keep them six feet apart from each other. They have to have a mask on. Um, there's one nurse and one medical assistant specifically set to do that all day. There was a lot, we've gotten more, thankfully, like each, there's been multiple days where we get to the end of the day and we have no more gloves and then we'll get someone will show up with one box. And so then we have a box for the whole day. So thankfully, most of us have moved to working remotely. And so it's really just the few patients that come in, we're trying to reach people over the phone, we did mailings, as much education as we can to let people know, telephone is what we have moved to, these are your options, but we're still here if you need us. So really doing that balancing act. Mm -hmm. So a long-winded question to say, we have material, but it's still short. <laughs> You're still rationing it, even though you have some. That yeah. makes sense. Now, I understand that everything is changing 
a mile a minute, right? We get new instructions every couple of days. But at this point on um, Friday, June 5th, what is your vision for how you see this pandemic resolving? Unfortunately, to resolve, if I could have control of all the little players, of course. that would be ideal. <laughs> <laughs> so it would help if we could get the leadership on the same page. Politics aside, what does the data show and what's the way moving forward? We're not going to be able to do anything that, say, European countries have done or China or South Korea, any of these places. We can take and glean information and ideas from those, but our country is bigger. Our population is bigger for, than a lot of them, and we're more widespread. And so it's hard just in general to get things that matter to the South to matter and be the same as people in the Northwest as the Southwest as the Northeast and then the whole chunk in the middle. So that being said, I think if we can get more information to people and not in a political way, it's not who's right or who's wrong. It's this is the data. And these are some of the ideas that we can try to eliminate risk or to bring those numbers down and to have transparency in the leadership. So we're going to try this. We're going to try it for two weeks because the reason why we're picking two weeks is because that's kind of the time frame that we would see symptoms in someone. So really breaking it down and explaining to people, this is why we're doing these things. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for what happened in New York. And we were a huge hotspot and the numbers were so high that yes, we needed to be in quarantine and everything needed to shut down. But then I'm home in Oregon right now and total they've had I think 60 cases in the whole county. And that number is mind boggling to me because we've been in the hundreds and hundreds were dying every day. Um, they had trucks that were just to hold the bodies because we ran out of space and we couldn't keep up in the cemeteries. So we just, there were refrigerator truck trucks parked around the city holding bodies um, and just, so it was crazy. And then other places, it doesn't make sense to hold that same standard across the board. So I think the idea of separating it out and say having some federal guidelines and then bringing it down to each state level is a great idea. But unfortunately, everyone has made it so political. And it just, I just don't think that there's a space for that right now. And it's not the right space. Everybody just needs to step back and politics aside, and who knows, maybe politicians can't put politics aside. But politics aside, this is how I, we can keep our people safe. And really, if you want to come down to it, then turn that into your your campaigning of, look, I brought the numbers down. I protected our people. You know, if you need to make it political to <laughs> get people to listen to you. But, um, and, you know, before this, COVID-19 has just highlighted issues we already had. We were already a very divided nation between the right and the left. Um, we already had very uncontrolled diabetes and obesity and lung disease and... Uh, high blood pressure. So now people care a little bit more about those diseases because it increased their risk for COVID-19, but they've had a long time to care about their high blood pressure and their diabetes. So, you know, 
And we could also, from the New York example, look at other states and say, yeah, it stinks to hang out in your house for two weeks, but hopefully you don't become a New York where our numbers are coming down. Now the numbers are going up in other states. And it's concerning that different people in government in those states are discouraging people from getting tested because they want their state to be able to reopen and move into the next phase. Whether you test them or not, the person still has or doesn't have COVID-19. And it's the goal of testing would be to know so that you can isolate that person and who they had contact with, not so that you can shut everything down, but so that you can get a handle on how bad is it. Like right now in New York, we increased the number of people we're testing astronomically. We were first only offering it to the high risk groups. Now everybody who's potentially returning to work is able to get testing. So our testing numbers have gone up, but our positive rates have, are still going down. So, you know, testing or not, if the sick, if the illness is not there, the virus, it's not going to matter where people are getting tested or not. And if they are testing positive, move forward with that and don't let it get out of hand like it did in New York. You can catch it early and then you don't have to get shut down like we did in New York. So it's it can be really preventive. But I think discouraging information and discouraging education and discouraging testing is not the way to go. I think that's a good call out because you're right. It's it's an awareness issue, not a are you positive or negative? It's do we know you're positive or negative? How yeah. has the pandemic changed your world, your practice and personally? I with finishing up the doctorate, I was still I was already pretty hermit like of my weekends were writing these papers I had to write. So I was doing a lot of uh, evenings and weekends home anyways. Um, it definitely work-wise changed. I don't see patients in the office now. I see them uh, either talking to them on the phone or seeing them on a video. Um, and I just, I miss patient care. It, I'm, I'm still delivering it, but I'm not able to uh, really see the patient and talk to them. And it's almost more exhausting to do it over the phone or video than it is to see the person. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of time spent in trying to help them get on the video, um, trying different platforms because they don't get the link with this one. They do get the link with a different one. Um, educating people where how to use their smartphone because a lot of our patients are older. And so sometimes the video is turned backwards. And so we're seeing their floor versus seeing the patient or you know, we're seeing somebody else or one provider didn't know her patient was doing yoga during the call. And she said, you need to turn your video on so I can see you. And the patient was upside down. <laughs> so just it's and it's hard because it's some of the patients feel it's a little bit intrusive because when they do a video, we're going into their home versus them coming into a clinic, which is a neutral space. So um, that's been interesting. I've been really thankful that I speak Spanish uh, to be able to not have to bring in an interpreter on top of all of that to then bring an interpreter to try to explain, I can't see you or you're upside down or your camera's facing the wrong direction. Um, and personally, I would have loved to, you know, just like so many people would have loved to have had a graduation. I would have loved to, I was going to travel at the end of May. Um, I was going to have family visit me for graduation. And so um, you know, for good reason. My family all decided not to come visit me in New York, which I totally get. Uh, and graduation was canceled. You know, things I definitely understand in this school 
did a really nice video and did some other stuff. And so I think people are doing the best they the best they can around the situation. But I hope that we learn from it. You know, people have uh, they they're new they're now baking or reaching out to family members mm-hmm. that they wouldn't have reached out to before. We did a Zoom call. It's been like a month or so ago with one of my grandmas who is turning 98 and she's in a senior living facility. And so because of where she lives, none of us can go visit her. And so we did the Zoom call. And I think during our call, you know, she was super confused of where the video was and her thumb was over the her camera for most of it. But, you know, everybody got to talk to her and say hi. And so I think 40 something of us we're on at different times saying hello. And so I hope that we don't lose sight of that, of the caring for people and the realization that once you get wrapped up into, you know, the hamster wheel or the rat race, you lose things on the fringes and some of that are relationships. And so I hope that we don't, you know, just jump back into the rat race. I hope that we continue to take the time for loved ones and checking in and not just, you know, because the elderly person is, you're concerned about COVID-19, but continue to check in on them, you know? So hopefully this in myself and others continues to, uh, that we have a higher awareness of people, you know, and like, we're just, we're going to get to see smiles again. You know, everybody's got masks on. So to be able to see expressions of a face other than someone's eyes, I hope we don't lose sight of how smiles or like looking at someone's lips when they talk and getting to sit, like hug someone again and sit in a restaurant and eat, eat food, you know, takeout is great. I'm thankful that we can um, support local restaurants, but sit at a restaurant and be within six feet of another person. And I just hope we don't lose sight of how important that is. Yeah, I thought about hugging people again, but I hadn't thought about just like simple smile because it makes such a difference because you can't really express yourself with just your eyes. Yeah, and you know, even someone telling you a story, oh, wah, wah, wah. You know, you hear the sounds, but when you don't get to see, let's say, 70, 80% of their face, you you lose some of it. So You do. One other thought that I have, and interpret this as you wish, what do you wish everyone knew? What do I wish everyone knew? I think it's important for everyone to know their own worth and that the worth of someone else doesn't detract from their worth. Mm -hmm. And instead, if everyone has worth, it just increases your own. So, you know, thinking about, you know, beyond COVID and to the current movements, not just Black Lives Matter, but, you know, each individual that has uh, suffered from whether it be racism or police brutality, you know, there's a lot of movements, I would say, I guess, going on at the same time. But if we can all get to a point, it's not just, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, but it's love yourself. Yes. So know your worth and then love your neighbor and know that it then increases your own worth and love for yourself. If you truly love and value and give worth to another. So for example, this is totally not related to the current movements, but um, something that drives me nuts is that none of the services that nurses do are billable. So earlier I was saying that 99% of your hospital stay is 
a nurse. So nurse gives you your medication. They help you walk to the bathroom. They monitor your reactions to the medication. They do your vital signs every four hours. Um, you go to physical therapy, they bring, like you bring, you get brought back. So some of that's the nurse, some of it's a CNA, a nursing assistant, but none of those services are billable. The only part that it is billable is what the doctor did. So he came in and he gave the order, uh, the patients should ambulate or walk, get up and walk around every four hours. We should check their vital signs this amount of times. Uh, this is the medication that I want given. The doctor doesn't usually even give the medication. Once the order is put in, then the nurse can do it. So if we truly valued, and in our society, it's often cost. So if we were to be able to bill for all of those services that a nurse does, walking with a patient, helping them with the bathroom. If all of those had monetary value to them, it doesn't take away from the value of the doctor who came in or the nurse practitioner or the physical therapist. None of their values are lessened. It in, it, in actuality, it would increase quality of care. It would increase uh, retention of the nurses. It would give them better bargaining power for their salaries. And it would, in general, create a more positive experience for the patient with better patient outcomes. So it doesn't detract from anyone else's worth or value and it instead elevates everyone. So I think if we can know our own worth, because I think even that's a little bit lacking in society today is that we don't know our own worth. And so it's, um, you know, trying to bring others down because we don't see our own value and worth, but if we can see our own value and worth and then really elevate or recognize the value and worth of others, it just will bring the whole group up as a whole. It will help with the criminal charges, the delinquency, the homelessness. I'm currently learning about treatment for substance use. So it would really start to infiltrate and tackle all of those problems if we see people as people and see them as the having value. I like that a lot. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. I have learned so much. This has been awesome. As always, if this podcast has been helpful for you, we'd love it if you would hit subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review, send it to a friend. That's how other people can be impacted as well. That's how we continue to share stories. I'll see you soon, my friends. Thank you for being who you are. You matter in the kingdom. You matter to me. And you've got a heart the Lord is working in. The Lord is doing mighty things in you today in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a war on racism. The Lord is still moving and he's doing it in you. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.